Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode of In The House. This week, I chat to the gorgeous Jessica Smith, and this woman truly is one of a kind. I know you're really going to enjoy this interview. Thanks again so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy this interview with the gorgeous Jessica Smith. Jessica Smith is one hell of a woman. Having represented Australia for over seven years as a Paralympian in swimming, Jess now spends a lot of her time as a motivational speaker and MC to an array of important topics and causes. Dedicating her life to raising awareness around mental health and mental illness with a specific emphasis on body image and eating disorders, having suffered through this a lot as a young adolescent and adult. And I'm very lucky to be here today chatting with the gorgeous Jess before she jets off to the UK in just a few short days. Welcome, Jess. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Yay. Oh, my gosh. Thank you so much for fitting me in before you literally jet off to the other side of the world. I know. It's a little bit crazy, but always time for you and your lovely followers. So, again, thank you so much. Oh, you are too kind. Have you done this before? Uh, Once or twice. Once or twice. (laughs) Now, we should point out if you hear any banging or crashing in the background, we do have two small children at our feet today. We do. (laughs) Nothing ever goes to plan when you've got technology and children. So, I have tried for them to go down to have a sleep, but they're wide awake and playing in the background. So, apologies if there's some (laughs) clashing and banging and car and anything else you can hear. Well, I'm sure that people are used to that. I'm guessing that there are a lot of mums listening right now and they're probably feeling yeah. So, (laughs) But let's just jump straight into it because the kids are not going to wait for us. No, no, (laughs) never do. Now, obviously, you were a Paralympian and I just wanted to get it out there because there's probably so many people who are wondering, who don't know your full story, of how you, I guess, came to have, like, your arm or something that you were born with. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So I was born missing my left forearm. And to this day, there's been no explanation as to why oh, that really? happened. Yeah. So my poor parents sort of were left, you know, with no answers. And it was one of those things the doctors just said, you know, these things happen. Unfortunately, we can't give you any explanation. And they were told then that it would be a great idea to have me fitted with a prosthetic limb from as young as possible to help, you know, aid my growth and development. Yeah. And so I was the firstborn for my mum and dad. And of course, they wanted me, you know, to have every opportunity. Yeah. And so I was fitted with my first fake arm when I was just 18 months of age. And yeah, so, you know, going back, the technology is nothing like what it is today. The arm I had was like this hideous contraption that looked more like a claw. And yeah, it was so bad. And it wrapped, like, it wrapped around my entire body. That was the only way you could get it on. And I would have to go and have my arm plastered to have it you know, the fitting done so that the arm fit correctly and all that sort of stuff. A lot of stuff was involved. Anyway, I, at just 18 months of age, it was really awkward. Um, uh, This hideous contraption really that wrapped around my entire body, it was the only way that I could get the arm on and I would have to have my arm plastered and that would make the mould for the actual prosthesis to then fit my arm correctly. And so it was a huge process and I remember... At just 18 months of age, um, you know, this so-called aid or device, which was supposed to help me, actually led to the most traumatic, you know, event in my life. Um, My mum was in the kitchen and she was making morning tea and being a curious toddler, like we know toddlers are, I wandered into the kitchen and I noticed a plate of biscuits up on the shelf and I used my new amazing arm to grab a biscuit and unfortunately because I couldn't feel or detect heat I didn't realize that I'd knocked the kettle over (gasps) 
and I suffered third-degree burns to 15% of my body. Um, I'm showing live now, but I have quite prominent scarring on my neck and chest. Um, and so it was terrible. You know, I my mum in that moment did what she thought was best by trying to get my arm off. But in order to do that, I don't want to sound too graphic, but she had to take all my clothes off and with that came all of my skin. Oh, no. And it's like every parent's, parents worst nightmare. Worst and, and it is only now that I have my own kids that I can kind of empathise with just how traumatic that must have been for her. Um, I was rushed to Sydney Children's Hospital where we were living at the time and I underwent immediate skin grafting. So I had skin removed from my leg and the only way they could get it on my neck was to staple it. <gasps> It was, yeah, I know, horrific. So they stapled the skin and then I had to wear compression garments for the next two years to help with, you know, it taking to my own skin. And it was just, you know, I had blood transfusion. Uh, I was in hospital for about three months. And if anyone is familiar with, you know, um, scalding and burns, the the cleaning process to avoid infection is absolutely horrific. Thankfully, I don't remember anything about that time. Um, but again, yeah, you were young it, enough to, yeah, you yeah. know, and thank goodness. But like I said, you know, I can appreciate now just how devastating that must have been for my mum and dad yeah. and how awful. You don't realise, I guess, until you're a parent either, like how easy it is for those things to 100%. happen as well. Exactly. You know, just in that split moment. And I talked to my mum about it now. And she's like, you, you know, she just turned around and all of a sudden, yeah. you know, there I was with, you know, the kettle down on top of me. And so just awful. And, I, like I said, I don't remember anything about it, but growing up, I was acutely aware that I was very different. You know, yeah. I had one arm, I had prominent scarring. I'm very, very lucky that I didn't splash up into my face and it didn't go down yeah, into my breast. I'm very, it's, yeah, it's all sort of, yeah, all under, under my chin and yeah. just on, on my chest. So I am very lucky. We had great doctors and a lot of people say that they don't notice it until I mention it well yeah Yeah. exactly I hadn't at all yeah so but for me obviously you know I I knew that that was something different I have three younger brothers so growing up you know I knew that I looked obviously different to them the boys and girls obviously but having one arm and having these scars just made me a lot more self-aware and then I think a lot of other kids would have been at that age you know just this this sense of people think I'm different I know I'm different and just I always had low self-esteem because of that. You know, I wasn't very confident as a child, very reserved. And I remember, you know, some of my earliest memories were questioning why I looked the way that I did. And as a parent now, I think, you know, that's so sad that such a young child, even though it was me, but I kind of am disconnected from that feeling that I had to ask myself those questions. You know, it was really, really... um, awful time but yeah so that in a nutshell is is a little bit about my childhood so born missing my arm and then sustaining you know terrible burns from an accident and I think I don't think I know that that impacted how I saw my body growing up and how how that's influenced me even to this day yeah absolutely and like like you just mentioned obviously from a very young age you were very aware that that you were different how do you sort of think that it, it impacted on your childhood and your upbringing um obviously going through like two sort of like really sort of like major events in your life because it must have been also I I think about you know it was 80s that you were born that we didn't have scans and stuff like that so this would have been something that your parents only really discovered at birth wasn't it exactly I'm guessing it was an adjustment for them as well absolutely you're so right my mum and dad had no idea 
that yeah. I was going to be born, you know, with one arm. And so it was a huge shock to them, a huge adjustment. And also I know that the guilt that they have, especially my mum, yeah. you know, what did she do? What didn't she do? Yeah. How could she have changed things, um, you know? And then the guilt that a mother would know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, again, I understand that only now. And I think, unfortunately, my relationship with my mum was strained a lot growing up because there was guilt that she had. There was blame that I had, which never was intentionally directed at her, but yeah. I suppose she copped a lot of the frustration and when you're I was a kid, feeling. when you're young, you just don't know. Exactly, do you? <laughs> exactly. You know, and you, you know, you take it out on your loved ones. And I suppose I wanted answers to the questions that I had and my mum and dad weren't able to give me the answers because mm-hmm. they didn't know. So how frustrated they must have been as well. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it was just, uh, you know, my childhood, uh, very normal, I suppose, a very loving family. But one thing my mum has told me is that the nurses and doctors said to her that your daughter will have body image issues and she didn't know what that meant at the time. Yeah, because it wasn't, it wasn't, it's not, yeah. It's not like what it, it is now. It wasn't a thing, yeah. yeah. It, you know, and they said to her, you'll have to practice tough love. And my mum kind of did that to like a thousand percent and what I mean by that is there wasn't a lot of room for me to ever feel sorry for myself yeah so if I came home from school and said you know I I was left out or I feel like I was being picked on the response was well you just have to deal with it that's just your life you have to find a way to get over it and I'm grateful for for that advice and for those lessons but there are a lot of times when I felt like I just needed a hug yeah and perhaps that you know from my parents point of view was seen as they were being too soft and they didn't want me to ever feel sorry for myself so it was a really again as a parent I now appreciate where they were coming from um but there's certainly times when I thought I just needed to feel a bit more secure yeah if that makes sense and it's such a it's always like such a lack of education from both sides you know when you're so young you don't know these things and yeah I, like you said, it's not really become a thing until recently, I guess. You know, yes. back then, if someone had, you know, body image issues or something like that, it was just sort of labelled. Do you know what I mean? Exactly. And there was no sort of like, I guess, script on how to deal with That's it. That's right. So, exactly. Um, but we obviously mentioned in your introduction you are a Paralympian, yes. you're a swimmer. How did you get into swimming? Yes. I was still struggling with, you know, my appearance and the way that I looked, but I had this innate ability to push the boundaries. I grew up hearing a lot of adults talking about the things that I wouldn't be able to do and I felt like a lot of the words and the language that they were using was really limiting and I had enough self-awareness to know that I didn't want that to be my reality and so I was determined to prove to everybody else and to myself that my disability and my appearance wasn't going to stop me from doing anything. And so the natural progression was for me to use my body physically. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, to do things like to, it started out with just being active with my younger brother. So climbing trees, you know, sorry about that, that's my little boy Reza. Um, doing, you know, physical things, which then led into sport. And as a child, I played all sorts of sports. But swimming was what I fell in love with and it also helped, I guess, that I was talented at it. I remember competing in my first school swimming carnival when I was 10 and I beat all the girls and boys with two arms and not only surprised myself but, you know, everybody that was there. And it was the first time that I felt really proud of myself and felt as though my, you know, I was using my body for something positive and I also felt as though people were now looking at me for what I could do rather than what I couldn't. And so in that moment, I remember saying to my mum and dad, you know, I want to swim. 
I want to swim for Australia, you know, I just want to be always in the pool. And I didn't really know what that was going to look like. Yeah. But I suppose it was the start of that journey. And I became very good very quickly. I first was on selected onto the Australian team when I was 13. Oh, wow. Yeah, so very, very young. And so, you know, I was competing in the open age gra- bracket by the age of 13, so competing against adults and, and everything. And, yeah. Um, yeah, so it was really exciting and, you know, I didn't really understand the magnitude of what that meant. Yeah. You know, yeah, of it course. It was just very exciting. Well, I think back to when I was 13 and I was like, yeah, absolutely couldn't fathom. Yeah, it was really hard to sort of comprehend the magnitude of what it meant to represent Australia at such a young age. You think um, that was a – you think mum's good? Yeah. That's pretty good, isn't it? Hey, you might grow up to be an athlete too. Anyway, I went on to – continue representing Australia for seven years, so from 13 right through uh, to about 21. Wow. And, yeah, it was an amazing journey. So I got to travel the world representing Australia. I got to, you know, wear that green and gold uniform. Because that would have been two Olympics for you, wouldn't it? Well, it was actually one, and this is where my story kind of gets a little bit interesting in the sense that I missed the Sydney Olympics by one one-hundredth of a second. <gasps> Yeah. Um, I did not know that. Yes. So I was only 15 at the time and in the trials um, my main event was 100 metres butterfly. I was ranked sixth in the world and third in Australia. So I was basically on the team but the girl who was ranked fourth in Australia beat me by one one hundred of a second. So it meant that I was completely knocked off. There was nothing that they could just do. Just like less than a second. Yeah. It was oh just like God. not even a millisecond. Like do they not have even... sensors at the end of the pool? Yeah. Is that how they do it? Yes. Okay, because I always wondered it has to be a sensor. Yeah, so the touch pads, they're yeah. That, they're yeah. that sensitive. Yeah. So it was absolutely devastating. Um, and being that young, you know, I was, like I said, naive to the idea of what it all meant and I just, you know, was completely just gobsmacked you know my whole world shattered and for me that was the beginning of a journey with depression even though I was still swimming um it was just a time in my life when I felt like um you know I wasn't good enough and if I didn't have swimming I was just a girl with one arm and scars and all those body image issues started to really uh fester and yeah it was a really dark period for me um and even though I still loved swimming, swimming was probably the only fun, constant thing, you know, and sane thing in my life. It was where I could go to escape. Um, and it also gave me that sense of who I was. And so I didn't want to let go of swimming, but I was still really struggling with the body image issues. And um, I decided that after missing the games for Sydney, and you know, and not being able to represent my country in my yeah. home, you know, in Sydney, yeah. it was um, it was devastating, and I, was, you know, set my sights on Athens in two thousand and four. That's right. I was about to ask yes. you. I couldn't remember where they were. It was Athens. Yeah. yeah. So that's that's when you got to. That's when I, I made the team. Yeah. But in that time, in that four years of between Sydney and Athens, my life sort of changed quite a lot. I had relocated to university to train under an Olympic coach. Uh, I was on a sporting scholarship. Everything seemed like, you know, my life was fantastic, you know, on the outside. Yeah. But behind closed doors was a very different story. I had developed an eating disorder, which started out as bulimia um, and then sort of manifested itself in different ways over the space of a decade. By the time I had landed in 
Athens for the Paralympics, my body had basically shut down. Uh, but oh because of the stigma associated with mental illness and with eating disorders in particular, nobody knew that I was struggling. And so when I got to Athens and I didn't swim as well as expected, you know, again, there was so much shame and guilt that I had. Um, but there was really no, you know, people didn't understand that it was yeah. because of my eating disorder, which had basically destroyed my, my swimming career. And I was the only athlete to not make a final. And, you know, that's a pretty huge thing. A lot of people think that I have a Hollywood ending to my story. They're like, oh, she must have gone on to win a gold medal and, you know, her life was happily ever after. But at that point in my life, it wasn't at all. Um, you know, getting to Athens and I had hair falling out, my teeth were falling out because of my eating disorder. Wow, that bad. Yeah, it was it was really, really bad. Um, and I knew that um, I had hit rock bottom. Um, that I was probably going to die if I continued down that path. So I had to make some really big decisions, but it meant letting go of my swimming career in order for me to put my health first. So, yeah, I can only imagine that um, being in such a surreal environment, I imagine that it, it's, you know, especially in that those teen years, like that being your life, that it's, it's not a normal not at all. It's not teenager. normal. No, exactly right. It's not normal at all. And I think, you know, the pressures that I felt um, weren't something that a teenager should be feeling, you know, and being the, the expectations that were placed on me, the expectations I had upon myself in order to win gold, in order to, you know, be the best, break the world records, um, which is what was supposed to happen. But because my eating disorder sort of got me at the height of my swimming career, that didn't happen. And, you know, people wanted to know why. You want to have a chat too. And so I guess, you know, my story is that, you know, my eating disorder destroyed that part of my life when I was, you know, at what everyone else thought was the peak of, you know, my swimming yeah. career and that sort of stuff. And so it was. It was a really hard time in my life. But I returned to Australia and I admitted myself basically to a rehab facility. Wow. In Sydney. Yep. And I was there for six weeks as an inpatient. It was a facility for all addictions and so it wasn't a place for, wow. for eating, not just for people with an eating disorder. And so when I arrived, I didn't really understand what I was doing there because for me I didn't feel like I had a problem. I was still very much in Well, denial. yeah, I mean if you're at a facility, I guess there is a, a huge scope of people that are there and, you know, their symptoms have manifested in different ways yep. that you could feel like fuck where am I exactly and I had those thoughts of you know there's nothing wrong with me these people all have serious issues I don't you know alcoholics drug addicts um and I felt yeah. as though I was in the wrong place but it didn't take long for me to realize that I was exactly where I needed to be and that my addiction to food and to starving myself and to over-exercising was just my way of dealing with all yeah. these underlying problems, which was exactly the same for everybody else. Yeah. And so I developed this level of compassion for people because, you know, it was as though we all had very similar stories but our way of dealing with them was just a little bit different. You know, yeah. no one's better than anybody else, no one's worse than anybody else. And so, yeah, it was a really interesting time for me because I had to let go of my swimming career in order for me to put my health first and being in rehab, it just opened my eyes and my world up to, to this idea that 
what I was going through was addiction and it was just my way of dealing with the fact that I hadn't processed any of the thoughts and feelings about the body image stuff. So my eating disorder, like I was saying, it started as bulimia and I look back now and, you know, I made myself sick every single day for a decade and it's just it I feel so different from that person now and I just wish I could go back and give her a hug and sort of say just you know you know sometimes I don't even really know what I would say um I had doctors and you know nutritionists and psychologists approach me in a way that was like you just need to eat and that's never really the answer is, you know, it's the same with, you know, talking to someone who yeah. might have an alcohol it's a, or a it's drug addiction. It's a symptom, you know. it's not the problem. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And so fortunately going to rehab, it was this, the start of that recovery journey where I was able to really connect with some counsellors who helped me talk through, you know, the issues of, you know, you know, getting through having a disability and having scars and having body image issues and working through that. And so I was able to really connect with some great counsellors who were able to support me through, you know, that process of understanding all the underlying issues uh, as to why I had actually developed an eating disorder. And that was the beginning of my recovery journey. So, So yeah, I do work at it every day. And I think that's really helped me to do the work that I'm doing today in the field of body image and diversity awareness. You know, it's obviously given me the scope and the personal experience to be able to connect with a lot more people on Mm -hmm. this particular issue. And I realised in, you know, my recovery journey that I had a responsibility to be a voice for the people who couldn't give themselves a voice, you know, for yeah. whatever reason that they were being shut down by family and friends or just, you know, felt that they were too clouded in the stigma that exists with with mental illness. And so it's been a really interesting journey to share my own story because I've realised in the process of doing that that it's actually no longer about me but it's about everybody else and giving yeah. them the platform to share their own stories. So, yeah. Oh, it's, it's crazy. Like listening to your story and obviously, you know, going, going through that. And like you said, um, people may not know that you didn't have, I guess, that storybook ending, you know, um, how do you think, I guess, competing at such a high level in sports, uh, how do you think that affected you and your journey, you know, at such a young age, because it's such a huge thing to go through, um, you know, competing in a sport I'm guessing it was how do you think it sort of affected yeah, no, your body really, image and it's a really good question I think that when you get to an elite level of sport there are these new pressures that I you know I'm speaking on behalf of other people here when I say this but I feel like eating disorders were rife at that level yeah um and it was sort of we were able to convince ourselves and everybody else that our discipline with eating and our discipline with our training was all part of that process when really that was a cover-up for a lot of other, you know, yeah. ways to hide the fact that these were other issues that we were dealing with that were more about the body image and eating disorder. So yeah. I feel like I wasn't alone in that space of being at that high level of competitive sport. Um you know, because there's scientific reasons behind the fact that if you're lean and if you, you know, certain muscle mass, um, certain body um, sort of, you know, 
oh my god sorry muscle to fat ratio you know can potentially impact your speed your agility and all of that sort of stuff so it does come into play yeah and so they're the things that we don't realize like how much yeah yeah so you have to understand that side of things as well because it does play a part when you are an elite athlete and you want to give yourself every best opportunity like I said you know I miss the games by one one hundredth of a second and you sort of think well what could I have done to to keep that and it's very minute things and so eating and and your weight and all of that sort of does come into it when you're an athlete and so I think I got to a point where um it started to all become so complex and it was all intertwined and enmeshed in many ways that my eating disorder was you know kind of due to my swimming career and vice versa yeah Yeah. they've all sort of contributed to each other like yeah it was it was there but obviously having that in your life has obviously I guess exacerbated it absolutely a level that is just incomprehensible but like we were talking about um you've become an advocate for so many of these these causes and I just get this vibe that you're one of those people that you give all or nothing to stuff (laughs) you're not throwing yourself (laughs) into one thing you're throwing yourself into another and you've done some incredible things like your list of accolades is so long last year you won cosmopolitan woman of the year like in game change like that is amazing like thank you how has that been obviously I guess going from such like I said it before, it must have been such a surreal life and environment to be in to now come out the other side. And it it almost sounds like this was almost how it was meant to be, how it was meant to happen. Is that, is that how you feel? Yeah. I, you know, it's very humbling and I still have moments when I pinch myself and think, wow, I've been able to achieve so much just based on my life story, so to speak. Do you know what I mean? And, And it can be, um, really overwhelming at times because I think, you know, I'm just an average person doing what I feel uh, average day-to-day things. Um, But I have to be very much aware that in doing that, um, I am having an impact on other people's lives. And so there's a lot of responsibility that comes with that as well. And I don't ever take that for granted. And that's probably why I throw myself in, like you were saying, all or nothing. I feel um, so... I don't like to use the word passionate, but I am passionate about these issues because I wish that there had been more advocates when I was younger. I wish there had been better role models, you know, when I was at school. Um, And so I know that I have to be that person for any young girl or guy out there. Um, And even if it is just one person that I'm able to make a difference with, then that's, you know, that's a huge, huge impact. And and I never take away um, the, you know, how important that is. And I think that, you know, like I said, because it's just my story, it does feel very surreal sometimes um, and it's just, it's something, you know, that I'm working at all the time and I, you don't do it for for the recognition but when I am receiving certain awards like Cosmo Woman of the Year, it's, it's that validation that I'm on the right track and yeah. what I'm doing has been recognised and it is making a difference and, and, yeah, that's a beautiful thing and something, like I said, I'll never take for granted and I'm grateful that I'm able to have the platform to be able to do that. Yeah, it's, it's insane, you know, um, the stuff that you've done. Like you've written a book. Yes. Like, <laughs> and I, I knew that you had written a book but it wasn't until we were chatting the, the other week and I went and looked up and ordered it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but you know that's 
all of you, that's all off your own back, but that you've yeah. done that. Yes, I have. And again, I think it comes back to that innate ability, you know, that I had when I was really young to say, no, stuff this. I'm not going to let other people stop me from doing what I know I need to do. And writing this book, it's a children's book about a little girl with one arm. It sounds a little bit egotistical when I explain it like that. But the idea is that growing up, I never had resources that had characters that looked like me or resembled yeah. disability or diversity. Yeah. You know, it was just models and you know people and actresses on the television in the magazines that I was never going to look like so I wanted to be able to create a book that kids could relate to because they see reality every day so they need to be able to read reality and it was a book that nobody wanted to get behind and when I say nobody I'm talking about big big publishers they said oh it's too niche of a market and so I thought okay I know to them it's business it's dollars that's right exactly and I understand that of course don't get me wrong um you know and I think that's really hard for for people yes it still needs to happen and it still needs to be there it's just right they don't see that no and for someone like me who you know of course you set out on projects like this thinking yeah I might be able to you know profit from this wouldn't that be great but that was never my intention Mm -hmm. and I and I say that genuinely and so it was frustrating when nobody else could see my vision in, in the same light. Yeah. And so I thought, okay, stuff it. I'm going to do it by myself. And I was living in Perth at the time and I thought I want this to be a Perth project. I want to support local businesses. I want to support local artists. So the illustrators from Perth, it was all printed in Perth, wow. um, no offshore, anything. And I was proud of that. Um it meant that maybe the book, you know, had to be sold for a little bit more than, you know, yeah. what it might be in bookstores through, you know, um, main publishers who can print out, you know, so much when they go overseas. But that that was fine and the support I got was phenomenal because I sold the first print in the first few days and made all that money back. And so wow. for me, again, that was a, like I felt like saying stuff you to all those, you know, snobby publishers because I was like, well, clear there, clearly there is a need for this sort of stuff Yeah, and I am doing the right thing. And so we're on the second print now, which is just about sold out again. Um, and so That's for me, incredible. yeah, it is. And it, because I think people are really realizing you know it's not just a a story about a little girl with one arm it's it's a story that any child can read because it talks about you know differences and diversity in all their forms so whether that be hair color eye color skin color and I honestly believe that if we can start having those conversations with young children now I do believe that it will change the way they view body image as they grow Mm -hmm. up because being someone who has spoken at schools and community events for many years I don't feel like we're winning that war I feel like body image is still such a negative issue for so many people and I felt like I was just repeating myself you know to the same age group and that's why I thought I have to start doing something for younger kids so that we can start introducing these ideas so that then the conversations we have about body image as they get older can be a lot more, you know, authentic and a lot more transparent, especially for mothers and daughters and, you know, parents to be able to have those conversations with their kids. So that's where that idea of the book sort of stemmed from and, um, yeah, it's something that I'm really proud of. No, that is is amazing because, honestly, I can't imagine – it would be if, you know, right now I was like, I'm going to write a book. Like, I'd have no idea. Like, where do you start with that? Like, and then to, of course, you know, source everyone to be involved and go as far as obviously trying to um, use the local community rather than just say, okay, to save a few dollars 
Like, yeah. I would be like, okay, so I'm going to write a book <laughs> and Google. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was. It was a huge learning experience. And I, my husband, you know, when I came up with the idea, he was like, you'll be able to do that in a weekend. I was like, oh. no, no. There's, yeah. Well, it's really easy. Supportive. Yeah. Like, let's not set that bar. Um, but, yeah, there's a lot that's involved, you know, it, the editing, the, you know, the, the language and the grammar and all of that sort of stuff and the story, having a lot of complex messages within the story but in a fun way that well, kids can Well, I can only imagine that writing a children's book is actually harder because you have to write it for children. I think so, yeah. I, I so, think so, you know, and obviously you don't realise how much the illustrations also become exactly. so important and exactly. the language that you use and to get your message across, you always have to translate it to a different language. Exactly. Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. So it was really challenging and it did, you know, it took a lot longer than a weekend. I can tell you that now. Um, but yeah, it's been, it's been a fantastic project. And like I said, something that I'm just really proud of and excited to see where it goes from here. Yeah. And one thing we were sort of talking about, obviously, um, with your message and body image, you're talking about, you know, the relationship between mothers and daughters. You're obviously a mother yourself now to two young children. Yes. And how do you think that through everything that you've been through and these experiences that you have had, then becoming a mother, how has that changed? Because I can only imagine it's really changed I guess the way you see things absolutely it's made me very more aware of the fact that my own behavior and my own language is crucial and so you know because kids are going to do what they see us do and yeah. what you know how what they see or hear us say and so I'm very aware of the way I talk about my own body something that I look back and realize now you know not to sort of you know, lay the blame or anything on my mum, but she would say a lot of negative things about the way she looked. And, you know, it was stuff that obviously had an impact on my life, you know, and seeing, for example, foods. No, you don't realise at the time, but foods in the kitchen that had diet written on them, you know, and things like that. And and my mum would always eat different meals to us. And so I became aware of that. And so I have been adamant to never, um, show that same behaviour in front of my daughter and also my son because I think it's important that boys are included in this conversation because they're just as at risk as girls are. Yeah. Um, and the other way that I'm finding that I am going to have to be is just open and honest with my daughter in particular about my own struggles so that she understands that when she gets to a point in her life when she is experiencing negative body image that she's not alone, that I felt that as well, that my mum felt that as well and my grandma just in different in different ways. Yeah. And if she knows that it's okay to feel those ways but here are some ways that we can, you know, stop us from feeling that way all the time and here are some things that we can do, some practical ways we can, you know, work through it together. Um, I hope that I can be that for her. Um, I'm terrified as well of the world that she's growing up in with social oh media, <laughs> you know, even for me now. And I know that, you know, you see it feel the same. You it's so hard because you can't work out whether it's getting worse or we're just more aware of it now. Exactly, exactly. Yes. And I, I feel the same. I don't know. I think... You know, because I have had these conversations with my mum as well and she said, you know, body image was an issue for her but she understands that now it's different. We're in a different playing field, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, social media is relatively new to us too in the sense I didn't have a mobile phone until I was at uni. So Yeah. Well, I mean, I didn't have Facebook until I was out of high school. Yeah. I can't imagine, imagine what my right. life would have been like if I had Facebook in high school. Yeah. Oh, my God. Exactly. It's scary, isn't it? It's scary. So how do we support our kids through yeah. this, you know, into this generation where we have no idea what it's really like? Well, it's a... It, it, 
social media as a whole and that accessibility to the world that people have now and yeah. have access to from such a young age, um, like it's a completely different playing field when it yeah. comes to parenting, I think. And it's interesting, one thing that you mentioned there, um, because I know that you and I are very passionate and think very similarly on similarly <laughs> on quite a few topics that it's people still have this idea that like with body image and stuff it's girls 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 yeah. you know mothers of daughters you know this is where it is but it's just as important with males and yeah. you know with with your son and I think that we're still missing that a little bit yeah, definitely. You know, I think I've done a lot of work um, with various organisations over the years that have put a lot of time and money into researching the statistics around how men and young boys are influenced by, you know, this industry that has been created to destroy our mm-hmm. body image. Yeah. And it's the same for boys. It just is a little bit different. So, you know, the obsession with, you know, going to the gym or, you know, taking certain supplements in order to make their body look a certain way or, um, you know, the influence from certain um, music videos, you know, I think it's it's still there. It still exists and we have to be very, very careful with the language and the behaviours we show to the men as well um, because I think we're going to find in, you know, in a short space of time just how detrimental the body image industry can be to, to guys as well. And so I think I have to be the same to my daughter as I am to my son so that they can both see that however they're feeling about their body um, is something that I'm going to support them through that process, yeah. you know, of being able to work through the, the changes. But, again, like you, we were just saying, it's a different world. We're in a different landscape now of how we're supposed to support our kids because of this area of social media in particular. Um, but I think the conversation has to include both men and women. Otherwise, mm. you know, it's just going to end in disaster. And it's, it's funny, you know, you mentioned that about obviously, you know, what some of the issues are for men. And it sort of makes you realise that you you have to be so critical when it comes to social media Mm. and I guess what they have effectively done is disguise these issues with all these, you know, health and fad diets now that, you know, everyone is trying to tell you, everyone's trying to sell you a diet plan, everyone's Mm. trying to tell you use this supplement or, you know, eat these foods or go on this meal plan or whatever it might be because it's going to benefit you. But it is actually just a cover-up and a disguise for these people that make money out of people having bad body image. 100%. I completely agree with you. And I think one thing that I tell a lot of my audiences and particularly, you know, young girls and guys in high school is that no obsession is healthy. There's no such thing as a healthy obsession. You can't be obsessed with health. That everything that in is moderation. Exactly. That is like, exactly. That's like my life motto. That's everything. Right. There is nothing you need to do to extreme. No, absolutely not. And I think a lot of the workshops that I run with um, teenagers are about media literacy and how they can educate themselves and have their own critical eye and being able to question things so that they don't just take it on first value. Okay, well, this person who's got you know such and such amount of followers, they're selling me a weight loss product. Well, okay. It's probably been sponsored. Oh so how much? I know yeah, that lollipop. recent post it was just with that silly lollipop oh. or whatever it was, um, and it's so damaging. Like a hundred percent. And kids need to realise that this is an industry. So we need to ta- teach them that from a young age. The, the when they see these images, okay, 
this is interesting. What What is it about? What is being marketed here? What's being sold to us? You know, start to question mm, those why things. Is it, yeah, why yeah. is it being sold yeah. to me? Yeah. Don't yeah. just see the image and go, okay, I'm going to have that product as well, you know. Because, because Kim Kardashian has it. Exactly. Yeah. And, and be mindful of the fact that she's probably been paid so much money to sell that. Yeah, so I think it's really important that our kids learn how to develop that that critical eye when it comes to the media so that they know when they're being conned yeah. or when, you know, it's not at first value when it, you know, especially what we're talking about with um, Kim Kardashian and people like that who have a following and they do have an influence and they need to be held accountable mm. because this is dangerous stuff we're dealing with here. Absolutely, and I think that... Uh, because it is such a new thing, social media is still very new and I guess the um, the rules and regulations around it are still mm. being developed, is that there needs to be some kind of ownership, do you know what I mean, where there needs to be some kind of responsibility. Yeah. Like there is in every, like, you know, in traditional media, there are, like you, you can't advertise, you know, stage one formulas and, and yes. all that kind of stuff yep. in Australia and there's all these laws. But, you know, with social media, there's still such a grey area. But I think it's also you can't always just place all the blame on that either. And like you said, children need to be made aware and they need to be critical and they need to look at something like that and say, okay, well, having that lollipop is not going to make me like Kim Kardashian because there are probably many other people and many other things that she's doing and that are involved to make her look the way that she looks like. And it's not, you know, if someone's trying to flog that a lollipop's going to make you look like that, you need to be, I guess, aware and make those decisions and be critical. We can't put all the blame. No, you're exactly right. And I think that's why it comes down to education. So for all the parents out there who just want to ban their child from using social media, I don't think that's the answer either. (laughs) There's a responsibility for us to learn as well so that we can educate our kids because whether we like it or not, this is a world that they're living in. So we need to be able to equip them with the resources and, you know, tools and skills so that they can navigate it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I guess to, um, you know, just to sort of wrap it up a bit, if anyone, if anyone is listening to this and it's really resonating with them and it's something that they are conscious and concerned about, they can always come to your page and they can follow you because this is, this is what you, this is, this is you and this is, this is what you advocate for. And I guess everything that people have heard about you and your story and your journey, you know, that is why you do what you do. And, um, if you guys don't already follow Jess, I'm going to pop all of her social media and website and everything in the links below. But I just wanted to say thank you so much for having me today. I absolutely love talking with you because like I said, these are things that both you and I are so passionate about. And I've, you know, I've followed you for, you know, quite a few years now. And I just think the work that you're doing is amazing. Oh, thank you so much. No, it's my pleasure. (laughs) And I feel like, you know, with this podcast and everything that you're doing, you are allowing your followers to be exposed to so many wonderful people in the social media space, which is just great. And that's the important thing. I think if people can follow like-minded people, people who actually inspire them as opposed to these people who are sending negative messages, you know, that's, Mm -hmm. that's our responsibility. We need to be able to take that power back. So by all means, please follow me, please connect. Um, I'm just grateful that, like you said, we've been able to connect because we're on that same page. We're fighting that same fight in a positive way. And I think the more of us that can do that, we're going to positively impact the next generation and that's what we all absolutely well thank you so much again thank you and enjoy your time in europe thank you i'm I'm so excited but i will be seeing you as soon as you get back yes (laughs) yes exciting stuff happening but you've been so good haven't you you talk to the microphone i know we've had so many interruptions but that is mum life 
the microphone came from the shop. You say thanks say for thank listening. You. I'm really talking to the microphone. You are talking, you are talking to the microphone. Say thank you. We'll chat to you soon. Say thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode with the gorgeous Jessica Smith. If you want to connect more with Jess, I'm going to drop all her social links in the description below. Once again, thank you to all our loyal listeners. And if you are new to the podcast, be sure to go and check back all our previous interviews with some truly amazing women. Thank you so much for listening and be sure to head back for our next interview coming in the next few weeks.